If you boiled all of that research down on what mental toughness is, it means goal fixedness, that you pick an objective and you say, I'm not going to stop until I've hit this target, which sounds great, but <laughs> is can also be problematic if it's not balanced with other capacities like, like mental adaptability or, or flexibility, the ability to change a strategy partway through if it's not working, that kind of thing. Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined on the line later today by Craig Weller. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, normally I would give you the quick recap of the week that was, but in the interest of getting all of these done before the holidays hit, giving myself as well as the amazing people at Podcast Network Solutions some much needed downtime, I am giving you five thoughts over the course of five weeks to help ensure that 2021 is your best year ever. So this week's thought is all about the concept of accountability. And I think it fits in perfect with a lot of the things that we talk about with Craig because in this entire episode, we talk a lot about personal accountability, being accountable to yourself, but also this idea of being accountable to a team. Now, the struggle here is that Sometimes as an entrepreneur, sometimes as somebody that is working out or trying to stay fit yourself, if you don't have somebody to be accountable to, it can be a lot more challenging. This is why people in a team environment tend to thrive because they have other people that they have to be accountable to. It could be their teammates, but more importantly, it could be their coach. And I think this is why coaching is such a powerful tool. And I can tell you firsthand that when I've been the most successful in my own training, when I've been the most successful running and operating my businesses, is when I have a coach to be accountable to. So simple thought this week, I want you to think about what your goals are for 2021, which we talked about in last week's episode. But once you set your goals, I want you to really think critically, like who is gonna hold you accountable to achieving these goals? And it could be your health, uh, your personal health. It could be your financial health, your business health. But whatever goals you have set for yourself, I want you to take it one step further. And don't just set goals, but find somebody that's going to help hold you accountable. And I think one of the keys to this is, well, really, there's two keys. Number one, the person that's holding you accountable, you need to deeply respect. And this is something that Craig Ballantyne has talked about very, very frequently in his Early to Rise podcast, which I love uh, for a lot of different reasons. But if you're going to have a coach, you have to hold them in the highest regard. It's got to be somebody you deeply respect and somebody you don't want to let down. Okay, so those are critical elements. But number two, and you may not like hearing this, a lot of people don't, at least initially, but I think paying for your coaching or paying for your accountability adds a level of skin in the game that you can't reproduce in any other way. And I'll give you again a personal example. If I pay somebody to write training programs for me, I'm gonna be a lot more accountable and I'm gonna be a lot more willing to get in the gym and get the work done. If I'm paying a business coach to give me advice, I'm a lot more willing and a lot more apt to listen to what they have to say and to make sure I'm taking action each and every week to move the needle in my business. So that is the whole theme of this week. Last week, we talked about goal setting. This week, I want you to seek out and find ways to hold yourself accountable in 2021. 2020, look, it's over or it's about to be over. We're all ready to move on. How are you going to make 2021 your best year ever? 
easy. You're gonna set goals and you're gonna find ways to hold yourself accountable. Hold your feet to the fire so that you don't have any other way out. You are sure you are going to be successful because you're gonna have a coach that holds you accountable and make sure you get things done, all right? So quick break from my sponsor, i.e. me, and then we will jump into this awesome episode with my guy, Craig Weller. Hey friend, Mike Robertson here. And before we jump into this week's episode, I wanna talk to you about something real quick. If you're listening to this show, you realize the power of coaches. Whether you're a trainer or coach yourself or an athlete who has worked with coaches in the past, you know how hard it is to accomplish truly amazing feats on your own. And I'm no different. In fact, I've come to the realization that while 2020 wasn't awful, I'm definitely not where I wanna be yet in life. And as such, I'm gonna be hiring multiple coaches in 2021 to help get me back on track. But here's the thing, sometimes you want coaching, but simply can't afford a private coach. After all, I realize whether it's in-person or online, my private coaching program isn't for everybody. But what if I could still help you in more of a group style program? If this sounds interesting at all, my annual training group could be a perfect fit for you. In this program, we go through four three-month phases of training, building the engine, leaning season, athletic domination, and stronger. But the cool part of this program is that it's more than just a training program. Every month, you'll not only get a new workout to follow, but we'll also add in monthly challenges where we develop habits with regards to nutrition, recovery, and mindset to help ensure that next year is your best year ever. Trust me, I know 2020 hasn't always been kind to our habits and our routines, so this portion of the program alone could be worth the price of admission. If you're interested in learning more about the annual training group, head on over to robertsontrainingsystems.com forward slash annual. Again, that's robertsontrainingsystems.com forward slash annual. Or if you have any questions or concerns, just want to learn more about the program, shoot me an email at mike at robertsontrainingsystems.com. Okay, that's enough from me. Thanks so much for listening, and I'd love the chance to work with you and help make 2021 your best year ever. Craig Weller is a former U.S. Navy SWIT, or Special Warfare Combatant Crewman. He is also certified under the Department of State's Worldwide Personal Protective Service II and spent nearly two years on the High Threat Protection Team for the U.S. Ambassador to Baghdad in Iraq. In special operations and in subsequent private deployments, Craig held a variety of instructional and diplomatic security roles in locations including Kenya, the Philippines, Central America, South Sudan, and Iraq. Along with Jonathan Pope, he co-founded Ethos Colorado Training Center, a full-service strength and conditioning facility based in Denver. Prior to that, he founded Barefoot Fitness in South Dakota, with two training facilities based on minimalistic principles developed while training SOF personnel in austere locations. In this show, Craig and I start by talking about how getting stapled with 60 pounds in the bench press got him started on his path in physical preparation. We talk about the power of coaching and how a swim coach that made a few technical changes made a massive impact on his development early on. From there, we cover a ton of various topics, from what he means when he discusses development and display, to the power of goal fixedness and the role of mental feedback loops in skill development. I can honestly say this was a fascinating discussion and I know you're gonna love it, but enough for me, Let's do this. Craig, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Super excited to have you on. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? 
I grew up in small town South Dakota as a kid, and I, I joined the Navy when I was 17 or 18, just out of high school. And I didn't know how to swim because of where I grew up, and there wasn't really a swimming pool. And I volunteered in the Navy right away for a special operations unit in which anywhere from 70 to 90% of the people who start the course and do know how to swim will fail anyway. I made it through that process, sort of like learning how to do math by taking the SATs, and I became very interested in what it is that makes a person resilient and adaptable. So fast forward about 18 years from that, and some stuff happened in the middle, and now I just published a textbook with my friend Jonathan Pope on training resilient special operators. And we train people to succeed in selection courses like what I did or like the Army Special Forces or British SAS or Navy SEAL selection. And we have a very high success rate. That's that's awesome, man. So tell me, what originally led you to the world of physical preparation? Like, how did you get started working out? Uh, so when I was a kid growing up, like, I was a very skinny, weak kid. Like, I remember... On the eighth grade football team, I was the skinniest kid on the eighth grade roster and the seventh grade roster. I weighed less <laughs> than a year younger than me. And my dad actually like fudged the numbers a bit when they when they filled out some paperwork and said that I weighed more than a hundred pounds because it was kind of embarrassing for me to be like the ninety-five pound, the only under a hundred pound kid, you know, on the right. roster. But but I was raised with a very strong growth mindset before that was a thing, before I even knew what that meant. Like I remember like around sixth grade, my older brother bought a bench press set. You know, like the the old ones with plastic filled plastic yeah, cement weights. Like sand yeah, or cement in the inside, the, yeah. Yeah, he used a wrench to put the clamps on. And like the neighborhood I grew up in, we had a bunch of kids that were all around the same age, you know, give or take a couple of years and and the bench press was the new thing this day. And all the kids were over at our house in our living room seeing how who could bench press, whatever. And the my friend, the neighbor kid who was two or three years, three years younger than me, went before me. And then I got on the bench press and lifted the weight that he did off the rack and it stapled me, just pinned me <laughs> on the bench. <laughs> and it was probably like realistically 60 pounds or something. Like it was not much. And I was crushed. But I remember like my dad and my my friend's dad both just kind of calmly told me like you can get stronger if you just put in the work like you you can become physically whatever you want to as long as you put in the time to do it and so i i knew that or i was i was always kind of raised with this belief that i was able to develop something if i could just find the the process for doing so like i was sort of intellectually isolated like me and my brother were kind of the weird smart kids in school and growing up in this tiny town there weren't many resources for us you know like we didn't have like a real sports program there weren't like great coaches or anything but we did have amazon.com so i bought piles and piles of books and i was going to learn this intellectually and figure it out so by the end of high school i you know i had over a 400 pound bench or deadlift and i could run a pretty good quarter mile like i was athletic and fit and it was very strong, but I also knew from the reading that I was doing that strength wasn't just a physical thing. Like it was a lot more than how much you could lift in the gym. So I went into the Navy specifically because I wanted to hit bottom and learn who I was when I didn't have anything left physically, mentally, or emotionally. Like I wanted to really test myself. I was really into the idea that you didn't really know something until you experienced it and applied it in real life. And I wanted to apply these sort of philosophical concepts around strength and discipline in the real world with real commitment and risk. Otherwise, they were just ideas, you know, like I, I, right. I didn't want to just know the words for things. I wanted to know the things. I love that, man. So now last but not least, 
fill us in on your career path because, you know, you, you kind of broadly brushed that, you know, you did like 18 years of stuff. But like yeah. the stuff that you did was pretty cool. So would you mind giving us some insight as to what your career path looked like? Because it's definitely not your traditional SNC coach. Yeah, 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 not at all. So in, in that selection pipeline in the Navy, the special ops unit I was in was called SWIC. And I normally you can graduate the SWIC pipeline in like six to eight months, something like that, if you count the prep course. It took me two and a half years because I made it about two weeks from graduating the first time and failed a time swim because I was still learning to swim along the way and got rolled out. They knew that I wasn't going to quit. I had the the mental pieces and they knew that I just needed to learn some of the technical things. So I went from the SWIC program to a BUDS program, which is the SEAL program. It's all, it all happens on the same base. And the BUDS program is called the Brown Shirt Rollbacks, which is normally where if you're a BUDS student, you're past Hell Week and you either get injured or you fail some specific performance thing, like a run or a swim, you get rolled out of your phase and then you go into this development program that's just like performance coaching. And in that program, I had the first real swim coaching that I'd ever had. And I had a guy watch me in the water Watch me swim. I think it was the same swim that I'd failed. It was like a thousand meter swim in full uniform. And I got out of the water. He's like, you know, this is your parents' fault, right? <laughs> because they, they decided to raise you in California instead of in the middle of basically a cattle pasture. You you would be able to do this. But he, he gave me at least 10 highly specific things to improve like real skills that I could practice with a mental model and a feedback loop rather than everything up until that point was just try harder. Everyone that was, that was coaching me, so to speak, the, the instructors weren't actually coaches. They're just people who had made their way through this process on their own and they didn't know how they made it. So they just told me to swim harder or try harder, or put out more or get stronger cardio. And by that point, I mean, like my resting heart rate was in the thirties. You could see my heartbeat through my chest. Like it wasn't a lack of fitness. It was a lack of skill. And this guy would stand at the end of the lap lane and tap me on the top of the head every time I hit the wall and correct me on anything that I did wrong. So I learned really fast, like bend my arm like this, hold my head like this. And within two months, I improved more than I had in the prior year and a half of training. And that swim that I failed by one minute and two seconds, two months in, I'd passed it by over 10 minutes. Wow. Um, and that was probably the biggest turning point for me in, in you know, how coaching works, that it's a lot more than just just try harder, do more, that it's that it's learn the skills, learn the process and, and try better. So when I graduated, finally, I started training other soft guys, special ops guys in, in our own community, the Navy guys that I deployed with and some of the, say, the Army Green Berets that we were with somewhere. And a lot of our work on deployments was training soft units from other countries. So six to eight of us would go into a country and train up to 200 other guys in, in a selection course. And I started running a lot of the physical training kind of part of that. And so I had a very motivated population of people where I had complete control to do whatever I wanted. Right. And I was combining this real world environment with the academic side. So I deployed with a pile of books and I'd correspond with professors or people like, actually, I applied some of your stuff on one deployment. I think that was right around when... Uh, so building the efficient athlete. Yeah, came out. yeah. About that's that's way back. Six, yeah. maybe something. Yeah. Six, yeah, seven, eight. They all kind of blur together at this point. I had an entire unit of people where I ran them through those assessments and built programs based on that. That was part of like how I learned things. And with the kind of personalities you find in in the special operations world, 
most people are kind of selected for honey badger brain. Like whatever you give them, they're going to do as hard as they possibly can. Like they'll break themselves. So whatever's going to happen happens really fast. And, and so you learn how, like what's going to break people, what's going to make people stronger and, and what in a more normal environment might not shake out for a couple of years. You see it in a few months because everything's applied so intensely and at such high volume. So I learned how to make people strong using very little equipment because in a lot of cases we just had homemade like Fred Flintstone weights, you know, stuff made out of pieces of metal we found and welded together or cement Fred Flintstone things, trees and logs sometimes. And I'm, and I, I learned like the principles that made that work. And so when I got out in 2008, I decided to just keep doing what I'd learned in the soft world because even when it wasn't my job, it was still the thing that I was always interested in and reading about and passionate about. So I figured I should figure out how to make money doing that. So I started a, my first business called Barefoot Fitness in 2008 in South Dakota. That went fairly well, and I streamlined it and licensed it out. So there's still now two facilities running in South Dakota that are sort of independently owned. And we all just kind of work together and maintain a, a system. And then I uh, started working with John Pope in Colorado. I met him in 2010. He started a business called Rogue that was his his gym, his fitness thing. And then we turned that into Ethos Colorado in 2012 and partnered on that. And around that time, I got picked up by Precision Nutrition 2012 or so and started writing and coaching for them and also working with John on training special operations people uh, with we did that through Ethos, and then now that's a separate thing called Building the Elite, which is the name of the book that we published, and that's the the business that we use for training special ops guys. I love so it. That's, that's the career path. I love it, man. That's awesome. And and I think when I was prepping for your show, I, I kind of envisioned taking this in two different directions, right? The first part, focusing on the special ops prep work that you've done, because I think that's fascinating. But then I'd also like to do a second part where we take kind of the stuff that you've learned in that world and and figure out how to translate to the clients and athletes that we work with. So mm-hmm. let's start really broad first. What physical and mental tools does it take to successfully navigate a special ops program? I think the most important concept is the idea that the most important factor in a system at any given time is the one that's most limiting. So like you take my story, for example, like I could run, I could take a beating, I could do a lot of things, but I couldn't swim. Right. And it doesn't matter how good you are at a whole bunch of things if you have one limiting factor that's going to drag you down. And that's one of the biggest thing that, things that applies in, in the special operations world because you're tested in so many different areas. It's often that guys are 90% of the way there, and then they have some vulnerability, something that was left unaddressed that that ends up catching them or breaking them. And there's sort of a weird paradox in there where it's fairly common that a lot of really good athletes fail in the courses because they've always been naturally gifted and they're accustomed to this world of positive feedback and things always kind of coming easy to them and and always being rewarded for what they do. And so they get in this environment in selection where the the whole thing is deliberately designed to be completely devoid of positive feedback and and everything is ambiguous. You like the goalposts never stop moving. You finish one thing, you might have finished first in the pack and all they're gonna do is say do it again faster. Or they're gonna find some reason to just make you do burpees in the ocean for the next half hour anyway. <laughs> and if you haven't developed the mental tolerance for that 
absence of positive feedback, if you haven't developed a tolerance for that ambiguity, then it becomes extremely stressful. And that's where that sort of weird paradox can come from, where the people who are mediocre athletes, who always had to suffer and struggle their way through just to, just to finish in the middle, are accustomed to that. So they've, they've developed the mental skills for tolerating that kind of thing. And then when, you know, the goalposts move somewhere in selection, it's less of a shock to them. Like they're able to take it more in stride. And, and so that's one of the things that levels people out in selection is not the physiological skill, but, but the mental skills that you have for dealing with hardship and ambiguity. So obviously a growth mindset is a big part of that. If you look at baseline psychological traits, conscientiousness is extremely important, high conscientiousness, which is sort of the, the kind of people who always follow through on their commitments. They do the right thing when the right thing is hard. They're punctual. They show up on time. All their gear is taken care of. They're always paying attention to the little details. That's really important. And then emotional stability or low neuroticism would be the other way of putting it, like the, the kind of people who don't get too wrapped up in their own head that are able to self-regulate and stay calm when everything around them is chaotic. Physically, one of the most unique things is just a huge aerobic work capacity because you're constantly moving throughout the day. You go from a timed run to an obstacle course and then you're running back and forth to classes and meals, like just getting places during the day, you might run six to eight miles. And then there's all these random little beatdowns, calisthenic sessions during the day. And you have to be able to tolerate that and recover from it because you also have to meet performance standards that generally get harder throughout the course. So if you're not recovering, getting better and performing better throughout the course, you're going to fall behind and you start to break down. A high strength to weight ratio is really important because of the aerobic volume that you're doing. Big bodies don't fare very well because big bodies are expensive. It takes a lot more to run 220 pounds of muscle up and down the beach than right. it does if you weigh like 65 or 170. So you need to be strong, but you need to be strong relative to your body weight, not just in the, the ultimate sense. And then from there, movement fidelity, the ability to hold good position and breathe through that position when you're doing overhead carries forever or any sustained long duration thing. You need to be able to not break down under stress. Like if you're carrying a heavy ruck for a long time, you need to be able to carry that heavy ruck with good breathing and good posture and not collapse into a human question mark by the time you're done. And then variability, movement variability. Like we ran that article on your site about this, yeah. like the ability to, to execute a strong, safe movement under weird conditions, you know, like walking in uneven soft sand, like especially in the Navy programs for Swick and Buds, you're, you're on a civilian beach part of the time. So if you're in front of like the hotel Coronado, the hotel Dell, the night before, the day before, some kid will have dug tiger pits in the sand <laughs> <laughs> and you're running down the beach or you're doing bear crawls or pushups and you'll have, you'll step in holes that some tourists dug in the beach the night before and you're running at four in the morning when it's still dark out. So you have to be able to be very stable and like resistant to injury from a, a variable external environment or special forces guys that are rucking in, in these hills and these little gullies where like joint injuries are really common because they take one bad step with a heavy pack on their back and they, they can get injured easily. So it's a lot about the ability to resist that kind of injury. And, and I think a, a key point is that no single event is that exceptional if it were done in isolation by a specialist. Like the run times, the swim times, like the fastest run time you'll need for a short distance, say a mile and a half, like sub nine minutes for a mile and a half is, is good, good enough. 
if you're a high school track athlete, that wouldn't even put you on a podium. Right. You know, it's, and that's the same with the swim times with anything else. If, if you were a specialist in these things and you had all day to prepare and you were rested and you had your favorite exercise candy and you knew when it was happening and how long it was going to be for, it'd be no problem. But you're doing these things in this constant grind one after another, after another, and it's it's not the individual events or the performances so much that gets you. It's the total context of all of them put together and the fact that they never stop. So it's it's the ability to tolerate those deliberately compromised stressful conditions and still meet performance standards, even though the environment is set up to make it really difficult to do so. Hmm. That's interesting. So I, I have a follow up to this. Have you found like ideal ratios or maybe a better way to phrase this would be, have you found like an upper tolerable limit for people that can be successful in this? Like you said, a 220 pound yoked up dude probably is going to struggle doing Mm -hmm. all all these aerobic, aerobically demanding events. So have you found kind of an upper tolerable limit where you're like, eh, you probably need to shed a little bit of weight if you want to be successful here? Yeah, I put it around... Obviously, it's a height weight thing, but I'd put it around 200 pounds for most courses would be the high limit of where you'd find successful candidates. Some of the courses that are more ruck intensive, like special forces selection, you have a little more leeway there because the heavier, stronger body can also carry a heavier ruck right. a little easier. So you might see 210, 215 with the the more aerobically intensive programs like most of them, BUDS and SWIC or the Marine Recon Sniper programs, 200 would probably be about the high limit. And that's with someone who's probably about six foot tall. Okay. More often, like the average you'll find is six foot's actually a little right around the high side. More guys are just under that by a little bit because you're still more efficient. Right. And like 180 going in, you'd be about 180. By the time you finish, you might lose 10 to 20 pounds because of the workload. You'll be very skinny. I think I, I'm six foot tall and I think... I finished at maybe 160, 65 pounds when I was done. And normally I'll weigh 185, somewhere in there. Wow, that's crazy. So obviously people see these like dramatizations and read about these programs online or they watch TV shows or movies about them. But I'd imagine that smart, smart preparation for these types of schools is quite a bit different than what the lay population might think. So would you mind breaking it down for us a little bit? Like how do you differentiate between high and low quality physical prep programs for special ops. Start with the concept of, have you ever heard of the phrase exploit and explore? Or Mm -hmm. you think of it as develop and display. So it's exploit. That's probably a better way to phrase it. Just develop and display. And, and what you see when you see these, these short clips of a selection course, like they're generally going to deliberately pick the really intense moments out of them. And it's, Aside from a few, most courses have anywhere from a three to five day sort of crucible that's just relentlessly terrible. <laughs> but most of the time, the day is made up of a fair amount of just sort of physical monotony. There's classes, you're just running back and forth to, to meals, like, there's a lot of farm work. And that stuff is boring and not that interesting on camera, so you're not going to see it. Like, you're not going to see a guy just shuffling at a 10-minute mile pace to get to breakfast. Like, that doesn't make good TV. So you see the peaks, like you see the, the dramatic parts. But but what you're seeing then is someone taking a test. You're, you're seeing how they're displaying or performing a capacity that they've already developed somewhere else. Like you don't learn to be a lawyer by taking the LSAT, the law school admission test. Sure. And when 
when people try to mimic the intensity that they see in a selection course, they're trying to to train for the test by taking the test, or they're trying to learn how to perform or learn how to do this thing by by mimicking the performance rather than the practice that facilitates the performance. So you could think of it as that ratio between development and display. And if you bias too heavily towards display or the exploit the exploitation of the capacities you already have, then you run into diminishing returns really fast. Like you don't build the foundation that you need. You're not actually getting stronger or more capable or more fit for some future thing. You're just showing off the capacities you already have. And if you do that, you probably don't already have everything you need right now. Like you need a long-term development process to get to where you need to be. So poor preparation is usually fixated on an excessive reliance on exploiting or displaying capacities that are already there rather than mm. investing in a long-term development process to, to make you more resilient multiple years down the road somewhere, you know, like if you're going to, if you're going to go into a program like special forces or SAS or whatever, you don't want to make that decision now and then go next week. Like you, you want a long runway to get you there. And the more time in that runway is spent developing your future capacities rather than testing and displaying what you have right now, the the more productive it's going to be in the future. That's brilliant. And, and that's the way I describe it is testing versus training. Too yeah. often, especially when you're young, right? I mean, you talked about your first day or your first day's bench pressing. Like that's what we would do is every Friday we would like test our bench press max to see if it had gone up. Versus like, hey, what if we just like trained for like three months and then test yeah. it? It's that same concept. Yeah. And I think this is common kind of universally in fitness, right? Like especially when you're young or especially when you're starting to figure things out, like you're so gung-ho, you're so excited. You want to test every single time you're in the gym versus realizing like the best, like the strongest power lifters in the world only test their strength once or twice a year. On platform, yeah. Yeah, once or twice a year. So, and obviously you need to work through that a little bit, but yeah, there's a huge difference in, in what you described, development versus display or testing versus training. However you want to think about it, if you're constantly going in trying to display your strength or trying to test your strength or whatever physical quality that may be, you're going to burn yourself out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. One of the biggest issues, and you already alluded to this, when prepping for special op programs is staying healthy, especially due to these ever-increasingly high volumes of training. So how do you go about finding that balance of getting enough volume in to build fitness levels while not breaking the athlete down in the process? Yeah, it, does, it goes back to that development over display thing and, and the importance of establishing quality and extending from there. So I, I've always thought of training as the stress inoculation of motor patterns. And, and stress inoculation is something that they use. It started out as a form of therapy, but it's something they use heavily in the military in order to prevent the breakdown of quality performance under stress. So if you're whatever skill you're you're learning in the military, shooting a pistol, driving a car, anything like that, your ability to display that skill is going to degrade significantly when you're really stressed out and tired or being shot at or you've been shot. So they you walk through this process of gradually learning how to first display or, or have a high level of quality in a skill, whatever that skill is. If we're using it as a exercise analogy, say you're doing a squat. The first step is just learning how to do a plain bodyweight squat really well. 
You know, you look for all the positional checkpoints of that. You make sure that all of that's in place. And then from there, you can add stress in, in the form of intensity, density, you know, heavier weights, tougher workouts. But the whole point is that you're still just develop or displaying this useful, this high quality squat under increasing difficulty, under increasingly high workload. And you only do that to the point that you can maintain quality. Like you don't, you don't train someone to where they're practicing failure or they're practicing poor quality just in the interest of, you know, toughness or whatever. So it's, you, you do have to apply extremely high workloads. Like the guys that, that we work with now that we're training for, for selection courses, some of their training days are going to involve like six plus hours of, of physical work because they have to meet the same, they have to become accustomed to that workload now because that's what they're going to face in their course. But you have to do that in a very incremental, sequential way where all of that work is done in a way that extends quality and that quality comes first. You're never compromising anyone's position. And you're also trying to account for variations in motor patterns and, and prevent them from getting locked into a single rigid pattern, which is a big issue when you're doing that much volume. You don't want to get someone stuck in an extension pattern where their lower back is solving everything for them. Right. And you know, they're they're just a sagittal monster who can't move rotationally or laterally or they can't really exhale you know they can't take that one bad step because they're really really good at extending they're good at push-ups and pull-ups and squats and deadlifts but but they're vulnerable in any other plane of movement so a good deal of that volume that they get will also be dedicated towards balancing out those movement patterns and making sure that they're still a three-dimensional creature when they when they go to selection and that aside the ability to recover is just as important as the ability to put out because you're not you're not doing one run or you're not doing one push-up test and then calling it a day like you're doing that day after day after day for up to six months so you have to be able to to put out really hard do a lot of physical work and then shut down, recover and be ready to do it again, probably harder the next day. And if you can only do it once, you're, you're not going to make it through no matter how well you do it the first time. Yeah. So talk to me, how long, if somebody knows they're going to go into one of these programs or they want to apply to one of these programs, how soon do they come to you? Like how much leeway do you need to help somebody get ready? And then on the back end of that, maybe how much more successful are they as a result of coming and working with you versus if they just tried to figure this out on their own? Uh, if, they, if they're gambling, if they're, if they're just figuring it out on their own, their odds are, I mean, those are the people who make up the statistical base rates. So mm. say the program that I went through, the, the initial screen test, which is just like the bare minimum standards, um, like a 500 meter swim, mile and a half run, push-ups and pull-ups, fails about 90%. I administered oh that test for six months, and I watched guys fail this every morning. On average, we have 20 guys take it each morning, and on average, 18 of them would fail. From there, the guys who pass go into the pipeline, and they go to the actual selection course. And in that course, the the, the attrition rate is 65 to 90%, depending on the course and the time of year. So by the time you're done, almost everyone who starts is going to fail. Even if they make it into the pipeline, their odds are maybe 70% on average. So the people who are gambling are just hoping that it'll work itself out or they can they can just want it more or try harder or just not quit or you know, like the guys who are using bumper sticker cliches to make right. it through, their odds are say thirty percent, twenty-five to thirty percent of success. And the prep that John and I have been doing since 
2010 we've been doing this, our success rate's over 90%. Wow. I've only had, I think, uh, that's actually, I think, hedging low. I've only had one guy not make it. I had a Bud's guy who, what did he do? Oh, he failed He failed a weapons exercise in third phase of Bud's. He was a couple of weeks from graduating. He'd made it through Hell Week and all that stuff and got dropped for a weapons safety violation. And John, I think, had one guy break an ankle. Recently had a guy who actually tore his knee and like the first day or so of special forces selection and has to go. He finished the course with a torn ligament in his knee. And then wow. they're like, you need to, you need to go recover and come back and do this again. Right. But yeah, our success rate's over about 90%. And that's not just in the U.S. So we've done every branch in the U.S., Air Force, Navy, Army, uh, Marines. Also a lot of Canadians, Austrians, Germans, Belgians, British guys, a couple SAS guys. So that's all over you know, the, yeah. the Western world. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Okay. So let's transition this over to the world of sports. And I think I'd like to start with just your definition of mental toughness for an athlete. Goal fixedness, really. If you boiled all of that research down on what mental toughness is, it means goal fixedness, that you pick an objective and you say, I'm not going to stop until I've hit this target, which Sounds great, but is can also be problematic if it's not balanced with other capacities like like mental adaptability or, or flexibility, the ability to change a strategy partway through if it's not working, that kind of thing. Interesting. Interesting. So let's take that and let's talk about the average middle high school or college age coach. We've all had this person probably at some point in our athletic career that just wants to make their athletes mentally tough by conditioning them until the cows come home. Number, <laughs> n- number one, is that really a worthwhile endeavor? I think we kind of know the answer there, but I want to hear your thoughts. And number two, are the athletes getting anything out of that? They're taking a test. And in, unless you identify and develop through deliberate practice the components of whatever, like, air quotes, toughness is supposed to mean, then taking that test isn't really any more effective than a track coach standing at the side of the track and yelling at their athlete to run faster. Because it's toughness in itself is an outcome. And we have to be able to identify the behaviors or the skills from which toughness arises and then train those components. Just like if you're a track coach, and you stood there and yelled at your athletes to run faster, like that's not really coaching them. That's you're giving them a test, maybe you're seeing how fast they're able to run and you're telling them to do as much of that as they can. But if you're not able to identify the things that would make someone run faster, like whether, you know, changing their aerobic fitness, their gait pattern, whatever it is, then you're not coaching. You're not making them better. You're just seeing where they already are. So yeah, most of the the mental toughness workouts that we see don't really have a specific goal they're just giving somebody a test and and they're not become better at taking that test. Yeah. Uh, so when you're doing those kind of workouts, unless you have a mental model, like a specific clear picture of what you're practicing and what good performance of that looks like, and you're running that, that mental model through a feedback loop, like I just did a repetition of this. Was it good or bad? Did I meet the criteria of performance or not? And if I didn't meet it, what can I do better to meet that criteria in my next repetition? And then you iterate that and you practice it and practice it. If you're not running it through that mental model feedback loop iteration process, then it's not training. It's just testing. It's just blind testing. Well, and it comes back to that point you made earlier about 
the swim coach that finally helped you, yeah. right? That idea of try harder versus actually getting tangible feedback that you can use and then put into your mental feedback loop, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, sometimes, many times, just trying harder isn't isn't enough. You you also have to try better, and yeah. that's what that's what a coach really is. Like what a coach should be doing. Like you're there to help set a culture too, and help create this environment where people are motivated to put in as much effort as they're capable of. But unless that effort is guided in a productive way, then you've just got people bashing their head against the wall trying to trying to do something that they don't know how to do. Absolutely. And it also comes back to, I was, I was making a note here, but our mutual friend, Joel Jameson, talks mm-hmm. a lot about, first and foremost, conditioning being looked at through a negative lens, right? They look at it as a form of punishment. So that's generally yeah. not going to help your athlete. But also... Like you said, when you're kind of arbitrarily just running to run, you're not tying that back to a skill that's going to actually benefit them, right? So, hey, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're a basketball player, work your conditioning in to your shooting practice or into free throws or whatever. Find ways that it's going to circle back to a skill that's actually going to be beneficial to them versus just trying to break people down in the hopes that you're going to somehow eventually lift them up and they're magically going to be mentally tough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's we do a lot of that with with our special ops guys where because they they need to put in so much aerobic volume, we we try to tie in specific mental skills like a a tolerance for ambiguity is a big one where, you know, in, in the soft selection environment, you have no idea how long something's going to last most of the time. So we'll send them on open ended workouts or open ended rucks, like especially for the guys who are, you know, special forces kind of guys that have to carry a ruck forever where they don't know how long it's going to last. All they know is that they have to maintain a certain pace, make it sustainable and and go until it's over. Like one of the ways we do that is we'll uh, we've got a couple of clients where they're they're married or they have girlfriends and their wife or girlfriend has the instructions for the day, like the range, and they're allowed to choose how much they they mess with them. <laughs> but they'll go do say a one mile lap and then they check in either at their house or by text message wherever they are and just say lap one is done, what's next? And then they send them out again and they go do something else. Maybe they have to drop their ruck and do a hundred burpees first or whatever. They they kind of simulate that annoying environment of of selection. Right. And they just keep going until it's over and they have no idea when it's gonna end and, and what they're doing while they're doing that ruck, which is, you know, obviously developing postural things and aerobic fitness, is learning how to mentally process that ambiguity and the annoyance of having to stop halfway through and do a bunch of lunges holding your rucksack like in a zerker position and there are specific mental skills we give them there like compartmentalization or segmenting and things like that where where there's a specific skill practice happening alongside that monotonous aerobic work and that's a much more productive way of using that time wow I'm having flashbacks to high school basketball conditioning where our coach would just be like, you know, we'd constantly ask, well, how many do we have? You know, how many are left? Sometimes he would give us a percentage, right? But generally it was just more. How long are we going to go till we're done? And so I just couldn't imagine doing that on a daily basis. That was like two weeks of preseason, you know, I couldn't imagine doing that for six months. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what gets a lot of people. It is. That's probably a useful practice as a coach, even with high school athletes, as long as they're given a skill set, you know, a way to effectively navigate that. Yeah, absolutely. So big question here. How could you take the lessons that you've learned from the tactical and special ops world and apply them to make athletic development better? 
I think one lesson, especially if you're looking at long-term athletic development where you're starting with a, a younger kid who still has a lot of potential ahead of them, like obviously this is going to be different if you're already at the collegiate or the Olympic level where people have been pretty well selected up to that point. But within the, the special ops communities, there's there's a weirdly like built-in emphasis on the growth mindset idea. And I think a lot of it comes from the way people are filtered through selection, where the emphasis is is not so much on like who's the best athlete right now, but on who's able to physically put out. And I don't does I don't think civilians really use this term in this context, but putting out means like giving maximal effort relative to right. your ability. And in selection, that's the mark of pride, or that's the thing that someone is respected for somewhat regardless of their actual ability like if if you're i had a friend he was when i was in the buds brown shirt program he called himself the fattest kid to make it through buds <laughs> who was terrible at running i mean relative to the bud standard he was terrible at running and that's why he ended up in the brown shirt program to learn to run better and this guy would absolutely crush himself just to squeak by the run standard and we actually like we because the brown shirts would bounce from phase to phase. So like if second or third phase was doing a run, the brown shirts would usually be in the mix doing the run with them. We got him to pass his third phase standards by running in like a flying V formation around him and breaking the wind in front of him. And then one guy would cycle back and put his hand in his lower back and kind of nudge him along down the beach <laughs> and, and bump him forward. But his name was Ryan. He would crush himself to meet those standards, like snot falling down his face, you know, like he'd just be completely wrecked when it was over and that kind of thing is given so much more respect than someone who say had been like a competitive triathlete or a track athlete before they showed up and they can just crush that run without even really trying right. like it's it's the trying it's the effort part that matters and so you end up with this community or this group of people who have all been selected by their capacity for putting out or putting forth as much effort as they possibly can. We use the term honest dogs, like sled dogs are selected for this too, or that they, they select for the sled dogs that will crush themselves the entire run and don't just, some dogs will, will put just enough weight into the harness to make the harness appear tight and take a break. Right. Um, and so they select sled dogs for that. They call it honesty. And you have a, an entire team combined of people, comprised of people who are the honest dogs. And they may not start out as the most physically capable, like the most gifted athletes, but they're the people who will never stop. And, and they're also, because of that, in some way, they, they develop a sort of camaraderie where they support each other in that. And the thing that's valued is that you're trying and putting forth effort and they become very supportive of one another in that goal or in that pursuit. And when you're looking at a long-term process, that sort of growth-oriented, you know, where the emphasis is is on putting out, on putting forth effort and trying harder and trying to become better rather than just being proud of how good you are at some arbitrary standard, I think is a lot more productive. And then the, I think the second part would be that in those environments, training is a process of skill development and stress inoculation. It's not just go do this as hard as you can and see how it pans out. It's it's always very specifically laid out as a skill process where they're applying, whether they know it or not, they're applying principles of motor learning and stress inoculation to everything that they're doing so that their skills don't degrade in the worst moments of their application. Like when, when things go really badly, they've already trained to be able to psychologically and, and physiologically handle high stress and chaos so that they they have less degradation under stress and doing that there's a there's an emphasis that's sort of opposite to the way a lot of 
collegiate or, or high school or Olympic athletes work, where in, in the normal athletic environment, there's a strong emphasis on optimizing everything. And everything should be done under the best conditions possible. Like sleep is perfect. Nutrition is perfect. You have your favorite exercise, candy. Everything's dialed in and optimal. And and you sort of create these finicky racehorses where if one thing goes wrong, then it feels like the sky is falling. You can't possibly make this happen because your exercise candy is gone or because it's raining or your shoe's untied or whatever, where people in the special ops environment train specifically to be able to keep going and hit their objective anyway, regardless of how many bad things happen, regardless of how suboptimal the conditions are. And I think if you were to look at the the psychological vulnerabilities that conventional athletes have, a lot of it stems from that, from that idea that they're fragile and that they're only capable of performing at their best when the conditions are optimal and, and they're not trained otherwise. They're not trained to perform in suboptimal conditions. And and that's probably a lesson that could be pulled from that. Yeah, absolutely, man. I can think of a lot of athletes that I've worked with over the years. If they could take some of those tools or some of those principles and apply them to their practice or to their game environment, they'd probably be a lot more successful. So, yeah. okay, guy, big, big question time. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Craig Weller one piece of advice about training and or life, what would it be? Learn to swim earlier. I, think. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about like I, 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 yeah, I don't know because a lot of the low points were also sort of deliberate. Like I set out, I didn't know how well that was going to work, but I set out trying to hit bottom and trying to suffer and and like learn, like first reveal who I was, like teach myself who I was, and then learn specifically how to be good at suffering, you know, and so like if I had been able to game the process better and be just naturally better at everything, I may not have learned those things and, and it ultimately could have been less productive. So it's hard to say, but yeah, a few swimming lessons would have been, yeah. would have been pretty key. <laughs> I mean, that's, I don't know, like that's just such a unique viewpoint at 17 or 18 years old. Most of us are got very different viewpoints on life, right? Very different life goals. And your goal was to like go bottom out and struggle. That definitely yeah. was not in, in my thought process at that point in time. That's very unique. Yeah. Yeah. I look back and I still have journals and stuff from back then. And yeah, I guess I read a lot. I mean, it goes back to that isolation thing growing up in like tiny town, South Dakota, that I lived, lived like mentally lived in this world, sort of these philosophical concepts and books and stuff. So it was, it was pretty heavily influenced by that. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Okay. Last but not least, we've got our lightning round. So six fairly short questions. Your answers can be as long or as short as you'd like. All right. Number one, what's your career highlight so far as a coach? Mm, there's not really a single moment that stands out that much. The, the, the best moments are when I get messages from people, because usually they'll go dark for a while. They go to the selection course and I don't hear from them for several months. And when I get that message, when they come back and they've successfully passed and they've you know, hit this big milestone in their life that they've been working for for years, usually, that's always a big one. And then on a smaller scale, or not a smaller scale, but on a different level, seeing a system that I built consistently producing great athletes from from the general population, like the at, here at Ethos in Colorado, where the barefoot fitness gyms that I started in South Dakota, the barefoot gyms use a lot of kettlebell stuff because uh, yep. it's based on kind of minimalistic equipment. And every year they do this, the tactical strength challenge. Oh, yeah. Strong first. And they crush it consistently. And these are people, you know, like, if you look through the rankings, usually someone from barefoot is in first or second place in most of those categories. And they're not 
competitive athletes. They're not people who dedicate their lives to this. They're people who are like accountants with kids <laughs> and, you know, right. but, but the system there consistently builds really strong, capable people where they're the, the one thing that was built into that was that, that culture of putting out and relative effort and there's no external competition aside from when they go do that tactical strength thing. No one cares about outperforming anyone else. Everyone is just doing as much as they can relative to their own ability. And they're, they're given, there's this cultural idea that you're capable of far more than you probably believe. And when you're in an environment where everyone else believes that too, people are able to get stronger and become a lot more physically capable and, and normalize pushing their physiology really effectively. And I, I like seeing that play out year after year and, and see that that system is reproducible, that it's not just a one-off thing, you know, like, like I've worked with some UFC guys and people like that. And it's, it's cool to see someone who's already, you know, been through this strong selection process to become a great athlete, go be a great athlete. But, you know, like when you're coaching someone who's already an awesome athlete, you don't even necessarily know if your interventions matter. Right. Like, a lot of times if you're an NFL coach or something like that, your job's to not injure people and that's it. <laughs> right. Like you don't, you don't really know how much you're changing someone from the path that they would have been on anyway. Mm. Where with the gyms where we're working with gen pop people, we can see real transformations consistently. And, and I think that's the more meaningful thing. I love that. Okay. Number two, talk to me about salmon fishing. <laughs> so that's referring to that article I wrote for precision nutrition quite a long time ago, I spent a summer working on a salmon boat in Alaska, not a big boat, like a 15 foot long little aluminum boat. So we slept on a cabin on this little island in uh, Nushigak Bay, no electricity, no cell phones for maybe a month and a half. And it was kind of my first like air quotes break from starting my first business. This would have been maybe 2010 or 11, somewhere in there. And I'd been just completely burnt out from, you know, the difficulty of starting your own business, yeah. running a gym. Uh, and, and I was exhausted and very used to like constantly be on, being on my phone, on the internet, on my laptop. And once you got out there, you could eat, you could sleep, or you could fish. And that was it. There was nothing else. You could sit around a campfire and sip whiskey, staring at a campfire and fight off 5 million mosquitoes, or you could just sleep in your sleeping bag on a little shelf in a cabin. And it ended up being such a valuable experience because like the first week or so I was out there, I would find myself touching my pocket thinking I'd felt my cell phone vibrate. Like I was so used to being on this constant electronic shock collar thing right. that that I, I couldn't let go and couldn't like stop worrying about what was happening in my email, what was happening at the gym, what was happening here. Like, and I couldn't pay attention to just the thing that I was doing right in front of me. And by the time I was done, like we had the longest, there's, there's like one point where the salmon run really heavily and, and you just go all out and we didn't sleep for, I don't know, 48 hours or something like that. Cause in like that two day span, you'll pull two thirds maybe of the fish you're going to pull that entire time or half as much. Oh and when it was over, they shut down fishing entirely in the bay because they count and they see how many fish made it up the river because there's a whole sustainability thing where they moderate how much you can catch. So they shut down fishing completely and no one's in the water for maybe two days. And I slept for literally 24 hours. I woke up once to pee and drink a protein shake and went straight back to bed. And when I woke <laughs> up 24 hours had passed, it was like I time traveled because I was able to finally shift into that mental perspective of the thing I'm doing right now is the only thing that needs to be done. So when it was time to sleep, the only thing I had to do or think about or worry about was just sleep. I could completely let go. 
and it was the same with fishing you know like if you're fishing that's the only thing you worry about you just pull the fish bag the fish and, <laughs> and and that's such a hard thing to find elsewhere in our life where you're only focused on this one thing that's right in front of you and i try to keep that perspective in mind you know i try to bring those lessons back but our our normal world chips away at that really effectively and sometimes i wish i could go back to living in a tent in africa or living in a cabin on a beach in alaska and only have the one thing to do at a time you know absolutely no i love that article and if i can find it i'll make sure i get it in the show notes and this will actually play in very well to the next question which is number three you've worked and lived all over the globe what was the craziest place you've ever lived and why Hmm, probably living on the nile river in south sudan in a tent i did that we had a with a monkey, with a pet monkey. We, I did that on short notice. I think I emailed you about when I was doing this about some advice on running or something. I, I, had to, I think so. Like I left on like two or three really short notice and I had to go meet some run standards. As soon as I got there, we had to take a little PT test and I hadn't run for time in like several years at that point, probably. But, but yeah, we, we were training soldiers sort of in, in South Sudan and I just lived in a really simple tent with the soldiers and on the side of the Nile River and is again very isolated. I had internet for like an hour or two a day at like four or five in the morning was the only time that it worked if I wanted to get up early enough to <laughs> to have internet. And otherwise I just did a ton of reading and, and worked through the day and played on the river once in a while. I'm just still mulling this idea of soldiers sort of. Soldiers they were <laughs> so this was this was we trained the the militia that was became the army of the government of South Sudan after Sudan seceded or South Sudan seceded from the nation of Sudan. So in I think 2011, Sudan split in half into okay. Sudan and South Sudan, and the soldiers, the militia that we were training, they were called. is a very disturbing name. The Sudan People's Liberation Army, which is never a name that, you know, as soon as you hear People's Liberation Army, you're like, this is, this is going to go bad. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We we were training those guys who became the official military of of the government of South Sudan after they became an official government when they seceded. Okay. Okay. That's cool. Number four, what advice would you give to a young man or woman who wants to get into the tactical or special ops world? Start now and follow an intelligent process and don't gamble and waste your time. Go go to the experts that have been there and know how to consistently reproduce success in this process. Don't don't like do what I did and go in there and try to figure it out on your own. Like there's there's a process now. Like you can learn how to do this and you can save yourself so much wasted time if you if you approach it intelligently and and give yourself a lot of lead time. Preparation is going to take multiple years in a lot of cases. Wow. Yeah, that's I didn't realize it took that long to build up. That's crazy. Number five, what's the biggest lesson you've learned from owning and operating a fitness business? I think um, there's not some special secret to it. It's it's basic things done consistently well. And obviously that plays out in a lot of other areas. But like the first one that I started Barefoot Fitness was really just based on what I saw a lot of competitors doing or other people doing was just messing up small things. Like you always, place always needs to be clean. You always need to be there at five in the morning or whatever it is to open the door, even if it's been snowing. You know, be kind to people, follow up, be considerate and, and have a long-term plan. You're not just exploiting people for money, you're building relationships. And I think it's it's a lot 
less flashy or exciting to not have like some super cool business secret or a system. But aside from having a system and being able to do things consistently, a lot of what made those gyms successful or the gym in Denver successful was that it was fundamental things done consistently well without deviation from that. Like we didn't have people show up to close doors because someone was sick, you know, things like that. We had, we had something in place where if someone woke up with a cold at four in the morning, someone else was a backup ready to replace them. Yeah. I, love, I love it. I love it. Okay. Number six, last but not least, what's next for Craig Weller? John and I are, uh, we're working a lot on building the elite that that book's been doing really well. We're actually updating it for a second edition and a third printing within a month or so. Wow. We're expanding what we do with that, the kind of coaching that we do We're we're going to release a mental skills course and teach some of those, the resilience concepts that for now we, we isolate to the special operations guys, but those concepts are applicable to anyone who's trying to become, you know, more resilient, more consistently capable in their daily life. And we're we're working on a mental skills course that'll help to teach some of those concepts and uh eventually we wanna put out scaled coaching and a few things like that. And otherwise I'm still working with precision nutrition as well, doing a lot of writing for them. And having a kid actually. Yeah. And, um, talked about this. May? I think May. May. <laughs> That's exciting, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, the uh, the minimalist training approach will serve you well for the next yeah. 18 years. to 20 years of your life. <laughs> <laughs> well, Craig, Sleep deprivation experience. Yes, all of these things. The uh, ambiguity of life. Yeah, it's <laughs> you're, you're well prepared, my friend. Well, Craig, you've been awesome to catch up with today. Where can my listeners find out more about you and all the great work you're doing? So the, the book is at buildingtheelite.com. We've got a lot of articles and other resources there. There's an Instagram thing that's at buildingtheelite. And that's where most of our daily social media stuff happens. There's a Facebook page, too, that like six people follow. Otherwise, <laughs> all the other work and writing I'm doing is with Precision Nutrition. And I, I do some of the writing for the PN Academy thing that's, that's launched recently where there's new courses every uh, month or two on things like behavior change or applied physiology. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Craig, again, man, this has been so awesome and I really appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's show with Craig. Sincerely hope you enjoyed it. Like I said up top, the guy's fascinating. He's lived everywhere. He's done all kinds of crazy stuff in his life. But most importantly, I think he's so down to earth in the sense that the principles that he's teaching to these special forces operators and all of these you know, high-level people that he's working with can be readily applied to our average everyday clients and athletes that we work with in the gym. So really hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, I got one or two favors to ask. Number one, if you're not already subscribed to the show, please do that right now today. It takes two seconds. Go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon, wherever you consume podcasts and get subscribed so that you get those updates each and every week when I drop a new show. If you are already subscribed, thank you so much. I appreciate it. But let's go one step further. If you would go to iTunes, give me a rating and a review. It's the most surefire way to make sure that more people are seeing the show. You know my my personal mission here, my friend. Like I want more trainers, coaches, rehab professionals to listen to and learn from these amazing people that I bring on the show each and every week. So if you give me a rating and a review, it almost guarantees that more people are going to see the show and we're going to make our industry a little bit better place. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.